This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Uh, welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast Podcast. Best bits from Thursday, February the 22nd. Uh, we caught up with John Lyons, regular catch up with John, who's the MD of Espas Real Estate. He was kind enough to join us live in studio to talk through uh, a couple of the big talking points in the world of real estate. Um, basically a bit of comparison year on year. How's the start of 2024 been compared to 2023? Uh, talking of real estate, uh, uh, double whammy for us on the show this morning. Andy Love was in. He's partner, head of Capital Markets and Occupier Landlord Solutions. Love that title. Uh, he was in to talk about the Fatame takeover. of. The, you remember the old Pepsi factory uh, where they used to do the bottling of Pepsi? Uh, that piece of real estate in Alcours was sold to Fatame a while ago now, but it's just been registered in the latest earnings. Uh, that's why uh, we got them in. Basically, to talk about A, what that plot's worth, B, what they're going to do with it as well. All part of the regentrification of that part of town. Is it going to work? And what could we possibly see there in the future? Uh, Vladimir Dushkiv is the Assistant Professor of Department of Economics at Alba's School of Business and Economics at Seattle University. Yeah, we crossed live to Seattle to talk all things Fed Reserve, uh, given their latest thinkings and decision making. Uh, we got uh, all the latest uh, from Vladimir on that subject. And a load of uh, chat of investment here in the region. We had um, double whammy when it came to solar investments, both Abu Dhabi and Dubai. Uh, so got the thoughts of Jean Walters on that one. And with Gulf Food ongoing uh, down in uh, at the Dubai World Trade Center, no shortage of of food headlines for you uh, at present as well. So big focus on that one. That's all right here on the Bite Size Business Breakfast Podcast. We've been taking in some of the big uh, talkers of the day. Let's start with, let's look to the sun for inspiration, if we can. Some blue sky thinking, because some big solar stories doing the rounds. There are indeed. And to get us in the mood on the day that the Bob Marley movie launches in Dubai, let's talk about the sun. Sun is shining, said Bob Marley, and little did he know back in the 1970s just how valuable that sunshine would be. Solar power very much in its infancy then. I still remember the man with the golden gun movie, James Bond. But now it's an economic powerhouse to the point that you've had not one but two big deals in the UAE over the past 24 hours. Number one, Diwa, confirming that they've got the funding for a 5.5 billion dirham solar power plant. It's out at Mohammed bin Rashid's city. It's not the first by any means, but it is huge. It's going to add about 70, 70% of extra capacity of solar power for Diwa and for Dubai. That's about half a million homes or thereabouts. And down the road in the capital, they're not missing out. The National reporting this morning that Abu Dhabi is finalising plans for a 160,000 home 
solar power plants in the capital. So this renewable energy talk that we had at COP28, it's not just talk, there's action as well. We'll be looking at the economic bigger picture significance of this. Here's the economist at Emirates MBD, senior economist, John Walters. Investments like this are the scale required for the UAE to meet its energy transition goals of both tripling the contribution of renewables in the country's energy balances by 2030 and also hitting a net zero target by 2050 at a country level. The UAE has already been rapidly increasing investment in solar power and we would expect that trend to continue in line with the country's growth over the rest of the decade. But beyond providing energy supplies for the UAE, investment into solar should prompt development of new value chains across the country as financial services take a role in providing funds for the sector while other service sectors can develop alongside. Jean Walters of Emirates MBD. Some big banks involved in that deal. Of course it's syndicated, many banks involved. Locally, ADCB and FAB have been mentioned globally. HSBC Standard Chartered have been mentioned, but there are others in there as well. Talking food this morning as well. Food for thought being provided by Gulf Food down at the Dubai World Trade Centre. Food comes in all shapes and sizes and at all altitudes as well because a big focus on delivery of great foodstuffs on the land. But what about in the air? Uh, Emirates Airlines, or rather Emirates in-flight catering, a division of Emirates Airline, has, of course, released their latest numbers as well. Not so much earnings uh, or costings, but more uh, the numbers of what they do on an annual basis. Gustav Oholm is the SVP of Catering and Cabin Services at Emirates Airlines. Uh, they have released a, a new uh, sort of number Grammy thing, a little info, infographic, if you like, explaining just how much of what is served on an annual basis. They've worked out that they serve about 77 million passengers throughout the year, or customers, or diners, if you like, which equates to about 149 meals every single minute. Now, how on earth... Do you do that? We're passionate about food, and 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 you have to be. And this is uh, this is actually the world's largest flying restaurant. It's something to sort of get your head around. We load about 500, up to 500 flights catered every single day, and that adds up to the numbers around 215,000 meals served on a daily basis. So it's it's uh, it's a big operation, of course. It's a teamwork, amazing colleagues on Emirates flight catering here in Dubai. And we also work with uh, globally with caterers around the world. We've also been looking at the property market. We've just been talking to John Lyons of Aspas Real Estate. Before that, we were looking at fizzy pop factories. That's right, because with confirmation that the Pepsi factory, as we know it, in Alcoz on Shakeside Road has been sold. Now, this deal was announced last year, but yesterday, while we were on air, we got the full-year financial results from Dubai Refreshments, which owns aforementioned Pepsi factory, and massive boost to their profit because they've booked the 252 million dirhams, quarter of a billion, that Alpha Tame has paid for that site. So we wanted to know what's going to happen to it. Pepsi factory has moved out to Dubai Investments Park, way out of town. That is prime real estate. What's going to happen to the gentrification of Alcoz? We've already got art galleries and trendy coffee shops. What happens next? So we asked Andy Love from Knight Frank. He's head of capital markets and occupier landlord solutions. This is what he had to say. 
Yeah, it's in high demand. A lot of the land, though, is on leasehold. Land leases of one year. This particular site was what we'd call GCC freehold. So they own it into perpetuity. You can take that longer term view at potential future redevelopment. I suspect the medium use will be automotive. Um, We know the car dealerships are all expanding. They're all looking for new sites and they're really struggling to find locations at the moment. The site was about 200,000 square foot, fairly sizable. And the actual warehouses that are constructed on it were around 100,000. So when you look at it on a rate per square foot, very high compared to what you would typically see. But there is a sort of tangible use there as a business. And then a longer term sort of hope value redevelopment if you can get the authority approvals to build some high rises. Andy Love of Knight Frank. I'm actually going to speak in about an hour's time to the CEO of Dubai Refreshments to talk about a bunch of stuff. Now, they're gonna, not going to tell me what Alpha Tame is going to do with the land because it's not their issue anymore. They've sold it. Alpha Tame can build what they want. But interested to know what Dubai Refreshments will do with the money uh, and also the underlying Pepsi drinks and snack business. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Right, big night for the Fed. We had minutes of their last meeting. So what did we learn? What were the decision makers at the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee really thinking? We know what they did. They kept interest rates on hold. But what were they thinking? Well, we found out last night. Here to dissect it all is the Professor of Economics at Seattle University, Professor Vladimir Dashkiev. Morning, Professor Vladimir. Good morning, Richard. Thanks for having me. So for you, what did we learn last night that we didn't already know? Well, you know, this uh, information is more like supplementary information that is always good to have because it makes the community more certain about where the Fed is going and how transparent the Fed is. So pretty much there is nothing revolutionary in those minutes, but it's just simply saying that we can trust it. That's the part of building expectations, a deliberate policy step from the Fed. But in terms of numbers, uh, it was definitely very nice to see that the inflation target of 2% is somewhere in the books for 2026. So this sends a very good message to the market when and how you should expect interest rates to slowly converge to the target rate. There were also a lot of interesting bits and pieces of information when it comes to the labor market, to the inflation in separate sectors. And all in all, the picture that we could paint using the information from the minutes was in a way, if you ask me, kind of rosy. It's telling us that the economy is strong. It's still it still has a way to go to reduce inflation to the target level. But the policymakers are quite confident that that will happen. And they're projecting this confidence on the entire community. A professor here in the UAE, we care deeply about this because of our currencies pegged to the dollar. It means that whatever the Fed does with interest rates, we immediately do with interest rates. So we care what the Fed does with interest rates more than we probably should about a central bank about 8,000 miles away. I'm looking at the the CME group. They have what they call their Fed Watch tool, and they look at the futures markets to see where the where the market is betting we're going to get interest rate cuts or indeed hikes. And the story of this year has been pushing out the prospects of rate cuts further and further and further. And I'm wondering where we stand now. For example, at the start of the year, not that long ago, there was pretty much a hundred percent chance according to this tool of the futures markets, that we'd get a rate cut in March. Now there's only a 6% chance of a rate cut in March. No one's expecting it, really. So when do we get a rate cut? And how aggressive will the Fed go? 
Well, first of all, exporting monetary policy of the United States to other parts of the world, that's more of a reality for a certain number of especially emerging markets. They might be strong, but still this is their monetary policy choice that they simply follow the Fed. Nothing wrong with that. So 8,000 miles doesn't sound like too big of a reason not to do that if that helps the stability of the economy. In terms of the predictions, when it comes to all sorts of tools that are trying to forecast something, I would take their results with a grain of salt because uh, there is always a certain degree of probability. And especially the events that are unforeseen, they might change a lot our understanding and our predictions. For example, and actually in this uh, kind of set of released minutes, there was that uh, kind of mentioning of the exogenous events. Uh, I think between the lines, you could think about such stories like the uh, Middle Eastern conflict. And um, I would definitely mention the story with Russia. The news that just recently came in that one of the most prominent, actually the most prominent opposition leader was found dead uh, in the prison, uh, as well as the fact that there is the presidential election cycle in this year in Russia, those things bring some uncertainty. There is no a certain number that we can assign to an event, a catastrophic event that will happen due to those negative political events all over the world. But whenever they realize that definitely changes all our expectations. And we're, like you said, we're not very likely to see the reduction of the interest rates in March, but then if economy keeps doing what exactly it's doing with cooling down labor market with dwindling slowly dwindling inflation and services then i would say at the next uh the following meetings not the march meeting but the one in may we should be careful waiting for the news about the reduction of the interest rates but then the next next question would be by how much is it just a quarter of a percentage point or the whole half a percentage point Finally, we've got about a minute left with you. We've got the South Carolina primaries happening this weekend. Nikki Haley up against Donald Trump. Most people presuming that Donald Trump will be the candidate for the Republicans. In terms of economics and what Americans are talking about on the streets at the moment, what's the big economic worry? Is it jobs? Is it growth? Is it inflation? What's the chatter? Inflation. It's definitely not the jobs because the labor market is strong. And although the minutes were saying that the ratio of the openings to the number of unemployed people is going down, it's going down from a very high ratio to a moderate one, to the one closer to the pre-COVID pandemic numbers. So job market is not the issue. But inflation is indeed a substantial problem. And especially inflation in housing, with all the limited supply of housing in the United States, that's a substantial concern. Uh, luckily, the minutes also show that this type of inflation is slowly subsiding. However, because it's not a clear path to reduction of that type of inflation going forward, Fed is not rushing to make any steps. That sheds a lot of light on the decision making of the Fed.
Professor Dashke, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for staying up late to speak to us live from Seattle on the west coast of the United States. That is Professor Vladimir Dashke, Assistant Professor within the Department of Economics at the Albers School of Business and Economics within Seattle University, reacting to the minutes last night that we got from the Federal Reserve in the United States and looking forward to this weekend's big primary in South Carolina. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right, let's talk real estate now. In particular, the gentrification of Dubai's traditional industrial area of Alcoz. Joining us in the studio to do so is Andy Love. He's a partner. He is the head of capital markets and occupier landlord solutions at night. Frank, morning, Andy. Morning, Richard. Thanks for joining us this morning. And the reason we've asked you to come in is this. Yesterday, during the show, we got full-year earnings from Dubai Refreshment, which is the local company that makes Pepsi or bottles Pepsi. And profit was up 300%. And we thought, whoa, I know Dubai's booming and the population's rising, but they ain't sold 300% more bottles of Pepsi. The reason was they booked in their annual profits the sale of the old Pepsi factory in Alcoz for just over a quarter of a billion dirhams. The deal was announced last year, but it came up in the accounts yesterday. And it got us thinking, well, what do you do with an old factory in Alcoz that's got a prime location on Sheikh Zayed Road? And we thought, let's speak to Andy, because he'll have some ideas about this. The buyer is Alpha Tame. They haven't yet said what they're going to do with this, but it's all part of Crown Prince Sheikh Hamdan's vision to turn Alcoz into something of a creative zone. Andy, what's your first impression? Uh, Well, I think we're seeing a lot of this now. There's a lot of demand still for Sheikh Zayed Road, in particular automotive showrooms. So I suspect in the short to medium run, Alpha Tame will probably redevelop this site as some sort of swanky new automotive showroom, maybe an EV or one of their existing brands. But perhaps in the longer term, maybe 10, 15 years, it might be redeveloped to something like Al Habtur City. Because it's quite a, a big plot, isn't it? And if you're driving to work, if you know Dubai, you will know it. It's difficult to describe on the radio, but it's um, it's Shakeside Road, close to Safa Park, close to things like Al Habtor City, which you mentioned with, with all the, the hotels that they've got there, the, the Hilton Hotels owned by the Habtor family. And we've seen already this in in Alcos, haven't we? And I've got a, own a design firm in Al Sakal Avenue. The neighbours are trendy cafes and art galleries. This has happened the world over, hasn't it? Meatpacking districts in New York, I could go on. Yeah, it's in high demand. Um, probably one thing to sort of think about when you have our cause is that a lot of the land, though, is on leasehold, land leases of one year. This particular site was what we'd call GCC freehold, so they own it into perpetuity. So you can take that longer-term view at potential future redevelopment. Um, but as I said, I, I suspect the medium use will be automotive. Um, We know the car dealerships are all expanding. They're all looking for new sites and they're really struggling to find locations at the moment. The site was about 200,000 square foot, so fairly sizable. And the actual warehouses that are constructed on it were around 100,000. So when you look at it on a rate per square foot, very high compared to what you would typically see. But there is a sort of tangible use there as a business. And then a longer term sort of hope value redevelopment, if you can get the authority approvals to build some high rises. Okay, well, that's good. Thanks for bringing up the numbers because I appreciate that. 200,000 square feet, 250 million dirhams, you know, do the maths. In terms of what they've paid Arthur Tame per square foot compared with what has been the going rate for deals in that part of town, what are we looking at back of an envelope figures? 
Well, I think historically, sites on Sheikh Zayed Road have been anywhere from sort of 500 to 1,000 dirhams a square foot. But most developers and most buyers look at you know, buying on a, what we call the GFA, which is how much you can really build on the site. So how, how far you can go up. Um, That's and, the gross floor area. Correct, yeah. correct. So the way to think about it is everything uh, constructed except usually the basements or the, the podium car parking. Um, and usually rates per square foot, like to give you an example, plots in Business Bay could be today on the water anything from 600 to 700. Um, or if it's not a water fronting plot, it might be 300 to 400 dirhams. So this this site, when you think about it, 100,000 uh, square foot permissible area, it's very high. But as I said, there's a tangible use to probably their automotive business and then this longer term hope value of redevelopment. And this redevelopment is interesting. It certainly went when Tom and I moved here in the late 90s, early 2000s. Alcoz was, Al- was an industrial zone. Yeah, there was four by four motors down there. I bought a well dodgy motor there. Well, four by four was a great organization, I should say, like that. I just, but, you know, but, but back then, you know, it was, it was a bit more Wild West, you know. Um, but now you've got the trendy parts of the art galleries and the, the trendy coffee shops and, and all that. The, the, the paddle courts. And the paddle courts <laughs> as well. It's becoming, I hate the phrase, but a lifestyle <laughs> destination as well. Yeah, yeah and I, I, that will continue. I think the, the locality of it within the city, um, relatively ease of access, although the ro- internal road network is will need improved upon. But we're seeing it with the types of tenants who are calling us on a, a daily basis, always looking for sites within Alcoz. But, you know, um, you know, right now, supply, the vacancy is is probably under one percent. In terms of, of how this happens historically in other parts of the world, it, it does tend to take a while for these areas to be repurposed. I mentioned the, the meatpacking districts in New York as one, but, but many cities have got these old areas that were industrial areas, you know, back in the Industrial mm. Revolution, if we're talking about Western Europe and North America back in the 19th and early 20th century, and now they're thriving either office blocks or residential. So it happens, but it tends to happen over, over decades, doesn't it? But then Dubai tends to do things quicker, doesn't it? Correct. And you could argue that it could happen even quicker. As I said, most of the land in Alcoz is on leasehold. So one-year rolling land leases with the government. So in theory, uh, you could see instances where these land leases are not renewed and these current occupiers are encouraged to move out of town. It would then be for the government to redevelop it or potentially sell these plots. So there is that risk for occupiers in Alcoz. And, as, and, and the factories just move further out of town, and Dubai Refreshments is a good example of that. It's a while now that they opened their new factory, not in Alcoz, but out in Dubai Investments Park, what, 20, 30 kilometres out of town? Which is now full. Dubai Investment Park is, land supply is probably, again, under 1%, vacancy, similar levels of existing warehouses. So you will now see occupiers move even further out of town towards Dubai Industrial City, which is uh, adjacent to the new airport. Finally, you're looking at your job title, Head of Capital Markets, Occupier Landlord Solutions. Phone must be ringing at the moment. Who's calling you most? Is it multinationals? Is it local companies? I mean, most my work is, is largely income generating assets, working with institutions. So we've seen a lot of foreign institutional money come into the city, looking at acquiring towers. 
naturally land with the price of residential apartments, villas. We've got developers knocking on our door looking for villa communities. Andy, and we're going to have to leave it there. We're out of time. Fascinating conversation. Appreciate you joining us this morning. Andy Love of Night Frank. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. What was going on in December 1989? Well, I could tell you why. You were wondering why the producers had put some Phil Collins in the playlist this morning. there because I thought the exact same thing. What was happening on December the 29th, 1989, the last time the Nikkei in Tokyo was this high? That song was number one of the Billboard Hot 100 in America, not in Tokyo, and his album was number one of the Billboard album charts as well. Well, look at that. Well, the good news is uh, that our next guest wasn't even born in 1989. (laughs) Uh, He joins us now live in studio Uh, with the dulcet tones of Mr Collins behind us there. Uh, It is John Lyons, the Managing Director of Spass Real Estate. He returns to the UAE, returns to the business breakfast. Good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? We're not too bad. Uh, You're looking fresh-faced, ready to go for 2024. Yes, ready to get into it. Ready to get into it. I mean, talking of getting into it, we're seven weeks into the year already. There are a lot of people still looking at it. Uh, Q1 approach, a lot of people sort of just easing their way into the year. But a perfect opportunity for us to do a bit of a comparison if we can. So let's look at the market. How has it compared to, say, year on year, first seven weeks of last year? Been very busy. And last week, I'm pleased to announce that last week was the best week of the year for ASPAS for signed MOUs in our sales department, which is always a good leading indicator of what's to come. Not only was it the best week of the year so far, it's the best week that we've had since September last year, which is obviously an interesting timeline to compare to for the region. And the fourth best week that we've had since the start of 2023. And everyone knows 2023 was an incredibly busy year with some very busy weeks. So to have the fourth best week since the last 14 months, that's obviously a a sign of what's to come. I think that we shouldn't obviously just look at what ESPAS has done. We have, yes, 15% up in terms of transaction volume for the first seven weeks. But at the Dubai Land Department, we can see transactions are 7% up compared to that same seven-week period in 2023. So the transaction data, the Dubai Land Department's more of a trailing indicator. Our own signed MOUs, which 15% up, is more of a leading indicator of what's to come. Yeah, because I was going to ask you about that in terms of when you crunch the numbers, because I suppose there's a big difference between transaction and registration, but both of them sort of trending towards the market as a whole. Yeah, so what I like to do is obviously look at the transaction data at land department level to see what is happening right now in the land department. That's the market. Mm. But our own signed MOUs, the deals that we signed last week, those are the deals that are going to go through the land department two months from now, maybe even three months from now. Some might transfer after four weeks, but the usual transfer is about eight to 12 weeks from now. So that gives me an idea of what's likely to be reported on in the news in the months ahead, because most of the news articles will focus on what's actually happening, which is transfers at the Dubai Land Department. And obviously, some people might be thinking, well, there's 2,000 plus real estate companies in Dubai. So what does it matter just what a SPAS real estate is doing? It is important to point out that although there is over 2,000 real estate companies in Dubai, 
is best still has large market share in a lot of communities. So I do think it's relevant that we share our data. For example, in Pam Jumeirah Villa sales 2023, one out of every five properties that sold there was sold by Espas. One out of every three villas that sell in the meadows sells by Espas. One out of every three in the lakes by Espas. 20% mm. market share in the springs, 15% market share in Arabian ranches. So it's not an insignificant data set for us to report on, of course, the Dubai Land Department data, that is the data that really is the market. So 7% up is the most relevant figure we can probably share today. Numbers good. Uh, numbers surprisingly good. But but should we be surprised by that, by given what's going on in the market or not? I don't think we should be surprised. Although I will say that this boom market that we've been in for many years now seems to be a very unloved market. Everybody hates the idea that the market's going up. When I say that, of course, property owners themselves don't hate the fact the market's going up, but everyone thinks what goes up must come down. When is it going to go down? And a lot of buyers think that, yet they still buy. So that gives me great confidence that there must be strong fundamentals backing this market that mean that even though people think that surely we're at the end of this cycle, we're still seeing 7% more transfers through the land department in the first seven weeks of this year compared to last year. And that's because, quite frankly, people realize that the alternative to buying is renting. Mm. And that's not a particularly attractive choice at the moment. So many people are buying even though they don't really want to. Brandy would call it proxy data. She loves a bit of that. She ain't here. You call it market fundamentals. What are the sort of market fundamentals that have caught your eye? Yeah, there was a very interesting article in Bloomberg recently, which was talking about the fact that the office market here in Dubai, the commercial office market, is bucking the global trend with huge demand. And then it dives into the reasons why. And I think those reasons also fuel the residential property market, those are demand factors. For example, it was revealed in that Bloomberg article that there are 30% more business licenses in Dubai in 2023 compared to 2022. And if you compare it to 2021, 75% more business licenses. And that was backed up by data that was also revealed from the DIFC, which showed that there's 26% more entities registered in the DIFC in 2023 compared to 2022. And importantly, 15% more people in employment within the DIFC region in 23 compared to 22. So these are really interesting demand factors that we should look at. And it's no surprise given that data, there's so many businesses being set up and there are so many people in new employment of course, that's population growth in front of our eyes, and that's what's fueling the, the property market here in, in Dubai. I know you're going to talk uh, London property with Dini in just a few moments' time, or the sort of compare and contrast as well. But just on that point you make, and what have I got 30 seconds with you? Why is there, you know, everyone talks London property, it goes up in value. Why do people have this sort of thing here where they just want to see it fall off a cliff or something, or expect it to? I've been talking about the London property market being overvalued for many years yeah. now, and I've compared it to somewhere like where I'm from, the Glasgow property market, for example. And I see that somewhere like Glasgow is very much linked to its tangible value. Whereas somewhere like London is many multiples above its tangible value. Most of the market is speculative value. Mm. What it costs to build and what it costs to buy are two very different things. And a market that's based on speculative value, as London is, is in a very good position to see price 
falls mm. in a high interest rate environment. In my mind, the London market, the value is created out of a low interest rate environment that we've had for over 10 years, and it wasn't likely to last. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.